We are in the middle of this series that we are calling War of the Worlds, in which we look at this truth that often gets obscured both in our culture and in in the church today. It's this reality that there are spiritual forces at work in our world, forces which play a role in how we live. And so over the course of these several weeks, we're taking an honest look at that, and we're, we're asking ourselves the question, what does God's Word have to say about this reality, and, and what does it mean for us as people to not only understand it, but to live within it uh, with fear, uh, without fear, uh, but with courage and with confidence and with peace. That's really what we're talking about over the next uh, several weeks. And so I think it's only right that before we take a closer look at um, our passages for this morning, that we allow God to really prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that in the midst of a spiritual battle, you provide places of refuge, you provide strongholds, places where we can come and find peace where we can be encouraged and strengthened and equipped to continue to live out our faith, to continue to walk with you in this world. And so, Lord, we pray that now as we come before your word, that you would indeed give us hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us this morning. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we've been going uh, through this series, we've been looking at the fact that there is a spiritual battle going on in our world. That there's a spiritual battle between the forces of good and evil, and that this is a battle that is not optional for anyone. That human beings find ourselves right in the middle of it. And what we said last week is that when it comes to entering into a battle, you really need to know three things. First, you need to know your enemy. Second, you need to understand your enemy's tactics. And third, you need to rely on your battle plan. Know your enemy, understand his tactics, and rely on your battle plan. And we talked in week one and week two about the reality that there is an enemy. There is uh, one who is in charge of the evil forces that are at work in the world, and his name is the devil. In fact, we heard it read a little bit earlier on in that passage from Ephesians 6, in which it said, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but is against the rulers and authorities and powers and dark powers in the spiritual realms. I'm talking about this guy talking about the devil. Now, many skeptics, and this, this was me, honestly, for many years before I came to faith, that what, what, we, what I typically expected to find on a Sunday was pastors preaching about hellfire, brimstone, and the devil. And so when I get up here and I say, hey, we're going to be talking about the devil today, I wouldn't be surprised if there are people out there like, oh boy, here we go again. Really? There's just that pastor up there talking about the devil. And for, for most of people who are unchurched or who, you know, church is not kind of uh, a part of their lives, when, when we start talking about the devil and demons, this just kind of seems weird and kooky. And yet, if you look at our culture, we also have kind of an interesting fascination with the spiritual. I mean, every time we get around to the Halloween season, some of the highest grossing movies are movies about the demonic and about spiritual possession. You drive in any suburb and you find somewhere along there downtown that there's some sort of psychic or palm reader. So on the one hand, while we look at this and we say the devil, demons, really, on the other hand, we know deep down within us that there are forces at work in this world that we cannot explain. That there are forces that often have an influence upon us that go far beyond our basic explanations of simple psychology or human wickedness. 
that evil has a face, that evil has a name. And so the question is, is knowing evil's name and evil's face, what are we going to do about it? Because the reality is, is that the devil and his demons are at work in our world and that they have a certain set of tactics that they love to use. And last week we talked about Tactics 101, the subtle war, and we saw that two of the tools the devil loves to use, the subtle tools he loves to use, are temptation and deception. That he often holds out something that looks good, but then lies about the consequences of giving into it. He holds out something that looks good, that he says, this will complete you, this will help you find meaning or purpose in life, this will ultimately make you feel uh, a sense of peace and joy, and then he lies about what it actually can truly deliver. And he does this to distract us, to keep us from not following God, to keep us facing in the wrong direction. But what happens when those tools fail? What happens when we look at uh, those temptations and we say, you know what, I don't really need what you're selling. That when we hear his lies, we say, I know that's not true, and so I'm not going to buy. Well, then he then defaults to some other tactics, and that's what we're talking about this morning. We're looking at tactics 201, the open war. Because there are two other tools that he loves to use to take us out of the fight, and those tools are destruction and accusation. That our enemy loves to destroy human life, and he loves to accuse us in a way that cuts us off from God. He seeks to destroy human life and accuse us in a way that cuts us off from God. So we want to take a look at those tactics to really understand how they play out. Because when I come to people and I say, hey, you know, the devil, is a, he, he's out to destroy you, the question then becomes, so what can Satan actually do to me? Like, what is he able to do? I mean, can, can he possess me? Now, spiritual and demonic possession is something that we see in Scripture. In fact, one of the biggest things that Jesus often had to deal with was people who were brought to him who were indeed possessed. And so he would have to cast out these demons. And, and for people who've been, who maybe don't believe in God but who are messing around with the spiritual, possession is a possibility. But if you're a Christian... God's word says something else. Here's what uh, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He's writing to this church that was fascinated in the spiritual. And he says this, he says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? See, what he's saying is he's saying, look, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it means that God dwells within your heart and within your mind. The moment you're baptized, God sets up his residence within you. There's no room for the devil and the demonic. They can't possess you because there's just no space in the inn. God dwells in your heart and your mind. He preserves you against things like possession. So when people ask, well, can, if, when Christians come and they ask, you know, can, can the devil possess me? The answer is no. If you're a follower of Jesus, he can't possess you. So then the question becomes, well, well, can he rob me of my faith? Can he somehow against my will come and, and steal my faith away from me? And once again, Scripture has some answers for that. Jesus says this. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the father's hand. 
See, what Jesus is saying is he's saying that, look, if you have faith, the devil can't steal that from you. He can't come and against your will rob you of your relationship with God. And again, I often have, you know, people who are, who are lifelong churchgoers, who are, who are Christians, who are saying, you know, I'm experiencing a really dry period in my faith. I, I don't feel connected to God. Has, has the devil stolen my faith from me? And the answer is no. Not according to what Jesus tells us here. And in fact, if you're even asking the question, it shows that you haven't gone too far yet. The very fact that you're worried about your faith being gone just shows that you're, you're once more seeking out God, that God is already at work within you, wooing you back to himself. And so no, the devil can't steal your faith. It's one of those other things that he's just not able to do. But then another question often comes and says, well, can he hurt me? Can the devil come and give me illness? Can the demonic realm actually put an end to my life? And here, Scripture kind of gives us a really interesting answer. And it's an answer that we actually find when we look at the book of Job. It's this Old Testament book, and the story goes something like this. There's a man named Job, and he's very wealthy, he's very successful. But the other thing that we learn about him is that he's a man who deeply loves God. He believes in God. He, he prays for his family. He's known as a righteous person. And we get a glimpse kind of into the spiritual realm in the book of Job at the very, very beginning because the devil comes into the courts of God. And, and God asks him, he says, so where have you been? And he says, well, I've been roaming throughout the earth. And, and God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? For he is a righteous man. There's no one like him in all the earth. And then the devil says this. He says, ah, but if you reach out and take away his health, I promise you he is surely going to curse you to your face. And so God says, all right, do with him what you want, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from head to foot. See, what we see in this story is that the devil actually delights in destroying God's creatures. He is one who loves to afflict us with pain and with hardship and with death. It is his delight and his joy. And what we see in Job is that he is able to do it. He can go and he can cause pain and harm, sickness and even death in our physical lives. In fact, Scripture puts it this way. If you look at First uh, Peter chapter 5, Peter writes this. He says, Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That the devil is on the prowl, that he delights in taking life. He is a murderer. And it can affect us even as Christians. But... One of the other things that's important to note from that story in Job is that even when he does that, it's never out of God's control. That even when we experience suffering and pain and hardship and even death, God is still powerful and sovereign over all. And this is something that Peter actually goes on to talk about. After talking about the fact that the devil is a devourer, he goes on and says this. He says, so resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered just a little while, 
will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. See, what he's saying is he's saying even in our sufferings, even when we find ourselves um, uh, crushed under illness and facing death, God can bring it about for his good. That we all face these sufferings, but we don't face them alone. In fact, there's this great promise from Scripture from Romans 8.28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Which means that even when the devil comes against us and afflicts us with illness and disease and death, God can use it for his good and for his glory. In fact, one of the things that's really fascinating is if you go back to ancient times and you look at what the Romans, the ancient Romans said about the early Christian churches, they said that the Christians were a weird bunch of people. And they were weird for two reasons. The first is they cared for the weakest members of society. They actually went out and cared for the poor and the sick and the diseased. That when plague hit cities, the Christians would often stick around to help out those who were afflicted. They said, that's just, that's strange. But the other thing that they said that, that made Christians strange is they said, they said, Christians die really well. And we're like, that, that might seem odd to us, but they say, no, Christians die really well. That whenever they're faced with death or hardship, they have a sense of peace and calm and confidence that we don't see in even our most hardened soldiers. And it was this faith that then took over the Roman world. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I've seen Christians in the midst of illness give great glory to God. I think specifically about uh, when my grandmother passed away. Um, she had been in hospice for a while. And uh, the night that she passed, the nurse told us that, um, that she was going, that her heart rate was, was, was going down, that her heart was failing. And so we gathered around her bed and we prayed. And when we said amen, the nurse looked up and she said, she's gone. But then something else amazing happened. One of the other hospice nurses says, you know, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen a group of people come around someone who's dying and so lovingly offer their lives back to God. And I want to know, what do you guys know that I don't know? And so while my wife and I were sitting there and we were waiting for the, the funeral home to come and take my grandmother's body away, we sat with that hospice nurse and we told him about Jesus. We told them about the hope that we have that even when we die, death is not the end for those who have hope in Christ. That death is nothing more than a blip on the screen of eternity. That for Christians, we believe we live in eternity and that this is not our final resting place. But that we will arise to new life in glory where sickness and death and tears will have no more. And as he sat there and he listened to that, he says, I, I want to know more. I want to know more. And so I ended up going home and getting my copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis off the shelf. I ended up going back to the nursing home the next day and putting it in his mailbox. Now, I don't know what happened in his life. I never heard from him again. But in that moment, in that moment when my grandmother passed away, God worked something together for the good. He used even her passing to bring glory and to reach a man who was seeking and so what can we do when the devil comes against us with disease and death? Well, nothing, but we can give glory to God. And we can trust that death is not the end. 
that his promise that God works all things together for the good of those who love him is a promise that he is able to keep. And this is true because it's, at the, it's the heart of our faith. I mean, think about the center of the Christian story is this idea that the Savior of the world is murdered. He's nailed to a cross that he's put there, not just by wicked people, but by the devil himself. The devil, seeking to destroy him, actually ends up finding that the whole thing gets turned on its head because Jesus doesn't stay dead. He rises to new life. He offers forgiveness and eternity to everyone who believes in him. God is indeed able to work things that look terrible out for his good and for the good of those who love him. So when that fails... When he's not able to destroy us, he uses another tactic. And this is one that we face every single day. This is the tactic of accusation. In fact, the word Satan actually means accuser. That's what Satan means. It means the accuser. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, it says this about him. It says, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And we see this accusation play out in our lives in a variety of different ways, but often it's in the things that we say uh, when no one's looking, that little inner voice that comes along and says, after all I've done, can God really forgive me? It's that little voice that says, well, if I actually talk to someone about my faith, I'm sure I'll just mess it up, so, so why even bother? It's that little voice that says, you know, I I can't lead a small group of people. I can't even lead myself. I mean, I still have so much growing to do in my walk. Who am I to lead other people in walking with Jesus? In fact, this was, this was exactly what was voiced yesterday. A bunch of us uh, got together with uh, people who will be leading small groups for our fall campaign on Friday and Saturday. We kind of got together for some training. And Pastor Mark asked the question, he said, so what, it, what, what accusations is the devil throwing your way? And it was often this one, I don't know enough. You know, I'm not strong enough in my faith. Who am I to lead others? Or it comes along with that voice that says, you know, if people only knew the real me, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. But one of the things that Scripture tells us is that those are simply whispers of the accuser, the one who comes against us and who wants us to believe that God doesn't love us and that he doesn't want to use us for his purposes, that he can't do things in our lives. This is stuff that, that not just Christians wrestle with, non-Christians wrestle with. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people and I've invited them to church and they've said things often like, yeah, but if I walk through the doors of that church building, I'm going to get struck by lightning. Because, if, because I've done some messed up stuff. God doesn't want to have anything to do with me. But what Scripture tells us is that when you look at Scripture, you realize that that actually is not what God thinks about us. That these are lies and whispers of the accuser that are meant to discourage and to take us out of the fight that are meant to drive a wedge between us and God and to get us to believe that God does not want to work in our lives for amazing and glorious purposes. I know that this is something that I wrestle with. I wrestle with it all the time. That there are many times in, in my heart of hearts in those dark moments in my life when I hear those whispers, who are you to be a pastor? I mean, look at you. Look at all the ways that you've fallen short. If your parishioners knew about half the stuff you struggle with, they wouldn't follow you. You think you're worthy to open up God's word? Who are you to tell people what God thinks about them, to think that you're smart enough or intelligent enough to open this and hand the words of eternity to people? Who are you? 
And my hunch is that there are many other Christians who hear those whispers. That the accuser comes against us because the truth is, a lot of that stuff is true. I'm not worthy. I do mess up. I struggle with sin like everybody else does. But that's not the only truth. Because the other truth is that God called me. Not because I'm worthy, but because he's able to do far more than we can ask or imagine. And so knowing that he's going to come at us with accusation then leads us to ask that question, so what tools, what truths has God given to us that we can lean on? What's the battle plan and the tools that he's put uh, into our hands that we can use in those moments when the enemy comes against us with accusation and with destruction? And the answer that we get from Scripture is God has given us a whole suit of armor. This is one of the most popular uh, verses, I think, for people to like print on Christian t-shirts. You know, this is the passage from Ephesians 6, chapter 11. Put on the whole armor of God. And usually they like, look like really tough t-shirts. They've got like shields and swords on them. Looks very cool. Something straight out of Braveheart. But one of the things that I think is so amazing about this verse is actually where it starts. We often start with verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. But it actually starts with verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. See, the reality is when the accuser comes and he says, God doesn't want to have anything to do with you, God comes along and says, that's not true. I'm on his side. When the accuser comes along and says, God doesn't love you, God says, I love you more than you can imagine. In fact, I'm going into battle with you. It starts with this knowledge that God is with us, that his strength and his power are on our side. That he goes with us. I mean, think about this. In, 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 uh, back in Paul's day, when he originally wrote this, he was probably looking at a Roman soldier. And when you became a Roman soldier in the army of Rome, when you joined and you enlisted, you were given your armor. They issued you a suit of armor, a helmet, breastplate, sandals, a belt, shield, sword, spear. And once you had those, they were yours to take care of. But they gave them to you. And they were everything that you needed to stand and fight in battle. They were perfectly sufficient for anything that you would face. But you had to put it on. And so then Paul goes on and he says, you have a mighty God who has given you an armor, so put it on. And he goes in to talk about what exactly is within that suit of armor. He starts with the belt of truth. See, they put a belt around them so that they wouldn't trip over their sword and so that they wouldn't trip over their robes. The belt kept them from stumbling. He calls it the belt of truth because there are those lies that Satan brings along to cause us to stumble. And so what he highlights is he says, put on the belt of truth because God's truth can cut through the lies and keep you from stumbling. But then he goes on and he says to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And again, the breastplate protected those vital organs, those places where you are vulnerable and weak. And he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness because although you're vulnerable and weak, God looks at you and he says, you are righteous in my sight. Put it on. It's sufficient to cover over your weakness. Then he goes on and he says, have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. See, they had to have good shoes, good sandals to be in the army because they'd go on long marches. They needed to be able to run and to fight. And he says, put on the sandals of peace. 
Peace that when fighting comes, you can take with you, that you can encounter those difficult moments with peace, but then you can give the gospel of peace to others. You're able to run and bring a message of good news to other people who need to hear it. But he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He then talks about take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. See, Roman shields, they would often cover cover them in some sort of cloth or in leather hides. And when they would go into battle, they would soak those shields in water in case the enemy fired flaming arrows at them because then the shield itself could extinguish the flames. And he's saying the shield of faith, the faith that clings to the promises of God when the accuser comes, when he fires flaming darts at you to accuse you, you cling to the promises of God in which he says you are forgiven. He goes on and talks about the helmet of salvation. You wore a helmet so you didn't get a concussion in battle. You didn't get disoriented when you got knocked over the head. He says, know that your salvation is assured so that you don't become disoriented. That when God says you're saved, that's it. Nothing else is required. Finally, he says to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, so that you can wage a counteroffensive. Remember when we listened last week to when Jesus was tempted? How did he respond to every single temptation? It was with the Word of God, which cuts through all the lies and deception. So we realize God has given us a suit of armor. And within that suit of armor are beautiful gifts like truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation. He says, put these on, being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. But the other thing that's important to note is that we don't do this alone. That if you were to look at Ephesians chapter 6 in the original language in the Greek, whenever he says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, that you is plural. He's talking to the whole church. Because again, if you looked at the suit of armor for the Romans while they had that breastplate that kind of covered the, the soft spots, the breastplate didn't do a whole lot for the back. Because the idea was that Roman soldiers don't retreat. They always move forward in battle. And so they would fight within these units, within these cohorts, where they would have to stand shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield. And that when they were surrounded, they would get into kind of this formation, this like turtle formation, where they'd have shields on all sides and shields above their, he- uh, above their head. They relied on their fellow soldiers to survive. I'm convinced that this is where the phrase, uh, I got your back, comes from. Okay? This is where that, that whole idea came from. I have no scientific evidence for that, no historical proof. But I think this idea of I've got your back comes from this idea that our back is vulnerable. We fight together. I love those commercials that the U.S. Army puts out. You know, there's awesome, like, action scenes of people jumping out of helicopters and, you know, speeding through waves and stuff like that. And it it says, go to GoArmy.com and become what? An army of one. I think that's hysterical. And I think it's funny because anybody who joins the army very quickly realizes you are not an army of one. That you get into your unit and they say, the only way we're going to get out of this is if we fight together. (laughs) Because that's the truth. You need your fellow soldiers. And God says, you don't just have a suit of armor. You have an army that you march with. You have men and women who are there to encourage you when accusation comes that they can speak truth and love and grace into your lives when you get discouraged, when the going gets tough. 
When you start to doubt and wonder, does God love me? You have other people in your life who say, I've got your back. And they can remind you of the truths of God's word. They can help you pick up that shield of faith again. This is part of the reason we put such an emphasis here at Trinity at getting into small group communities. Because the reality is, is we need people who are standing shoulder to shoulder with us, who are helping to encourage us in our walk of faith. That's why we say things like, you can't grow spiritually unless you're connected relationally because you weren't meant to fight that battle alone. You have people here who've got your back. But what I love is it's not just the people here who've got your back. You have someone else who has your back too. Jesus himself says, I've got your back. He says, no matter what you face, I go with you. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And when I realize that Jesus has my back, that God has my back, anytime the accuser comes and says, God doesn't love you, God is right there saying, yes, I do. In fact, I am willing to go with you to whatever end. It's part of the reason I love the entire chapter of Romans 8. I'm not going to read the whole chapter for you because it's really long. But I love the whole chapter of Romans 8 because it begins with these words. It says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation. Then when the accuser comes and says, you're not worthy, you're not loved, God can't do anything with you, Jesus says, you are forgiven, you are precious in my sight, and I have a glorious purpose for you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then it goes on. And I love how chapter 8 ends. It says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear that? He says, nothing, absolutely nothing, not even death itself, not even angels and demons can separate you from God's love. And what's so amazing about the Christian story is that those aren't just words on a page. That this is a truth that God himself demonstrated in time and in space. When people say, how do you know that God loves you? We can point to the cross of Jesus Christ and say, that's how I know. Then when he says, I'm willing to go with you even unto death, we know it because he came into our world. He suffered, died, and rose again so that we might live. He proved it. How much does God love you? He loves you this much. From now until eternity. And when we realize that, when we realize that God is with us, let the devourer come. Let the accusations be made. Because he's a toothless lion. That cat has been declawed. He's got nothing. Nothing with which he can accuse No destruction that is a final end. No temptation, no lie that can possibly stand against God and his truth and his love. And knowing that, that allows us to take a step forward in faith. That allows us to enter the battle with courage and with confidence and peace. 
Because when I know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, I don't have to worry. For the devil has nothing which he can use against us. That's the gift and the power of Christ in our lives. Praise be to Jesus Christ, the one who is indeed strong and mighty and able to save in all things. It's in his name that we say, Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about a relationship with Christ or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C, the number four, and the letter U.org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.